I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we're wondering, what works better in foreign policy, cooperation or coercion? Technology observers for decades have argued that the information age fundamentally restructured society into a series of networks and nodes rather than hierarchies and zero-sum games with winners and losers. These networks transcend national borders. Businesses and individuals are all in. It's globalization. It's Facebook. But has the network thinking filtered down yet to the heads of states and foreign policy mandarins around the world? They deliberately applied game theory to foreign policy, and we have to deliberately apply network theory. Western society should have understood the importance of networks, but actually seems to have been much more susceptible to sort of the disruption caused by a country like Russia. But under President Trump, the shield stands guard and the sword stands ready. Although there are some conflicts and diplomatic tussles today that hearken upon the real politique of the Cold War. We will defeat any attack and meet any use of conventional or nuclear weapons with an overwhelming and effective American response. There are plenty that don't fit into that pattern. Cybersecurity, pandemics, terrorism and illegal trafficking. They all pose a challenge to leaders hoping to stay ahead of crises instead of merely responding to them. Could the ideology of networks in the digital age provide a model for 21st century governance? Or, simply put, is cooperation rather than coercion a more effective way to manage global affairs? Our guest today is Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is the president and chief executive of New America, a think tank, and a former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department under Hillary Clinton. Her most recent book is The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World. And she joins me now in our studio in London. Welcome, Anne-Marie. It's my pleasure to be here. And also joining us to answer some of these questions and to pose a few of his own is Anton LaGuardia, our deputy foreign editor. Hello, Anton. It's nice to be here. Now, Anne-Marie, let's start with you. Your book centers around the idea that foreign policymakers follow outdated concepts, namely that states are locked into a zero-sum game of chess, and you say they should move towards understanding the world as networked, like a web. Can you explain what you mean by network theory, and how should it be applied in foreign policy? Well, I think actually foreign policymakers need both lenses on the world. I would not give up on chess or poker or any other game. If you think about U.S.-Russia relations right now, uh, there's plenty of chess going on. But I would say they need to add the network dimension. So let's stick with U.S. and Russia. There's sort of traditional great power rivalry, but the way that that rivalry is being pursued at the moment is through certainly through computer networks. 
Uh, they are hacking American elections, but they're also engaging in all sorts of other threats to our cybersecurity. We need to be thinking about how you counter those networks. And those aren't just Russian networks. Those are also things like WikiLeaks. And so you need to think about U.S.-Russian relations in terms of a network map. And that's just the relations between two states. If you move to terrorism or global crime or development issues, all those issues can be mapped in terms of networks of non-state actors as well as state actors. And my point is you can then create your own networks strategically to address specific issues. Anton, you want to ask a question. What do you think is there for the role of states in this network world? Are they just another node? Are they still the very big central nodes of these networks? I would say both. So again, you can say in the world of great powers, which is the traditional chessboard world, certainly states can act through networks. And you could say right now Putin is acting through a network of culturally conservative, xenophobic, nationalist parties, just as the Soviet Union worked through the Comintern, which was a network of communist parties. You could then say that states are mega hubs and operate through networks networks of parties or government officials. But I, th I think the it, it's equally true to see a world of business, of CEOs, of civic organizations, of criminal organizations. And in that world, states are often uh, much smaller hubs. They're still there, but they are not nearly as important. Now, this seems to be an evolution in your thinking because in your 2004 book, A New World Order, you refer to governmental networks. But here you're really talking about a sort of bottom-up people power network. Yes, and the, you, you're quite right. I started by focusing on the ways that governments were acting through networks of government officials. And then I was really pushing back hard against people who said the state is withering away. Uh, and my proposition was the state is alive and well. It's just that we shouldn't just look at things like the United Nations or the IMF or the World Bank. We should look at networks of finance ministers and justice ministers and judges. I still think that's important, but this book does take a wider lens and says, you know, in the world of the internet, in the world of terrorist networks and other criminal networks, in a world in which every major corporation has a global supply chain of what they would now call peers and co-creators, we need tools that let us, not just as government officials, but as a CEO or a civic leader, think about how to create networks that allow non-state actors to get things done. Anne-Marie, we have an administration that seems to be breaking lots of rules. <laughs> can they really apply, can the Trump administration really apply network theory to these problems? Well, I should say that I have distilled a great deal of network theory across many different disciplines into a bunch of fairly simple propositions. So if I were advising the Trump administration right now, let's take a, a domestic issue, I would say to the president, you have a great communications network. You're the hub and you have 26 million Twitter followers and you can broadcast things and that works fairly well for you. If you want that network to actually get anything done with respect to governance, and I'm of the other party, so I hope he 
he does not succeed, but nevertheless, you need to turn that star network, one center, many different people in the galaxy, into a pod network. You need to create groups of connected supporters who actually can mobilize political action. So that's that's a pretty simple concept, uh, and I think uh, he certainly could understand it. I think it is true that his State Department is strongly chessboard, right? Secretary Clinton spent a lot of time creating networks of women or of entrepreneurs or of Muslim communities. I do not expect to see a lot of that coming out of the Trump State Department. Part of why I wrote this book was I sat in meetings where we knew, for instance, with the Arab Spring or the new beginning with the Islamic world that we needed a set of tools, but all we knew how to do was to convene a conference. Right? We would have summits, summits of various different web actors. And we didn't have what's in this book, the strategies to say, well, if you want to build a network that for resilience purposes, this is what it should look like. If you want to scale network and you want to connect lots of smaller groups that are doing great things, this is what it should look like. I think you have to be deliberate about saying this is a new set of strategies, the time is right, but I don't think it's going to just come upon you because it does require, as as the strategy of conflict required, uh, they deliberately applied game theory to foreign policy and we have to deliberately apply network theory. So you mentioned the Arab Spring, which was you know, some called it a sort of leaderless revolution. It certainly used uh, network tools such as social media and Twitter. You know, knowing what we know now about networks and a policymaker in 2011 having read your book, it had it existed, what would have might have been different in the way the United States in particular responded to the Arab Spring and how might the Arab Spring have turned into something better than the disaster it has currently turned out to be? If you'd been thinking the way I think, you would have recognized even in 2011 that there was a network of opposition parties already, that a non-governmental organization had been working to connect the people uh, in Atpur who had been in Serbia, who had overthrown uh, Milosevic, to young dissidents in Tunis, in Cairo, in other capitals around the world. Knowing that, you might have also said, you know, they were following the playbook for how to overthrow a government, but they really didn't know how to then govern. And you would have spent more time, if you'd really known back in 2009, you would have spent much more time working with those young dissidents to say, what happens after the government falls? How do you then tap into existing political structures or organize your your own? There was a network of people already existing. To my knowledge, we never tapped into that. Um, You might also then have thought about how do we as a government help build some of the very civil society that we know is necessary to a successful democracy in our own uh, societies. Anton. What might have been more successful than, you know, what we've ended up with, which is either counter-revolution in Egypt or breakdown of the state in several other countries? I'm not going to pretend that you can you know, create a network and everything will be better. I do think in end, if if I just think about how when we came into government, the U.S. had not been engaged with the Muslim Brotherhood at all because it was designated as a terrorist group. We had not engaged in uh, developing 
uh, contacts with and even support for moderate Muslim politicians who would have believed in playing by the rules if they'd come to power. So I would have said that thinking through that, again, assuming we need contacts with the people in society who are going to be there when a current government falls. So the Government to government, that's the chessboard. The web, it's working with political groups, maybe even political groups you disagree with. Women, for sure. We could have had a really strong women's networks, and they would have been very helpful during the, the Arab Spring. And young entrepreneurs. Again, there are tech sectors in all these countries, and we could have had strong contacts to be able to put in support the day the government fell. Anton, you as a journalist have been around to some of the world's most troubling spots, and you've been at the pointy end of real politic. I want to ask you directly, how do you think of this idea of the web versus the chessboard? Do you buy it, or do you think this is foreign policy for snowflakes? <laughs> Not quite sure how to answer that. I think that uh, when you go to places, you are instinctively aware that there is more to events than just what governments do. The Iranian Revolution was another moment when policymakers asked themselves, you know, how did we not see this coming? What do we do to respond? There's a famous paper in the, somewhere in the dusty archives of the Foreign Office that says we must henceforth always talk to the opposition. <laughs> but talking to the opposition of countries is really difficult when the leader of that country says you will not talk to the opposition, which is what happened in Egypt. So, you know, I think people understand instinctively what they should do, but actually in practice it's difficult. We've had propaganda, we've had counter-propaganda, we've had Kenan's grand strategy, we've had Radio Free Europe. I mean, a lot of these ideas existed in analog form in the past. So I would say I'm not sure that the sort of web-centric, network-centric view of the world gives me a different answer to the world's problems. Well, let me challenge you on that by turning to Anne-Marie. You invoke, Anton, rightly, the grand strategy of George Keenan, which, of course, appears throughout Anne-Marie's book, The Chessboard and the Web. And so, Anne-Marie, to you, it does seem like there's something new here. What would George Keenan think if you were to present this idea to him? How would he have maybe changed containment? Or how would American foreign policy be different if we were able to apply this thinking back in the 1950s? He would have said that in strengthening Western Europe, which was a large part of containment, right? We were containing the Soviets, but we were also building up Western Europe. He would have known that that meant commercial networks and civic networks. And you can go back to de Tocqueville for that or other democratic theorists and today Bob Putnam. What he wouldn't have been able to do is actually map those networks. So, Anton, where I would say you really have a new set of tools is that instead of the endless memos that we write in the State Department, we should be providing network maps. So you can now do this, of course, on social media, and people are doing it on social media, and they can see who's connected to whom, and they can see who's who's being retweeted, and they can actually intervene to, in some cases to cut that or to create a counter network. But even more fundamentally, you would, should, be, should have been able able to say in Western Europe, all right, let's map the parties, let's map the companies, let's map the civic groups, let's figure out very strategically whom do we connect to whom, how do we then, but also support that network. Because one of the things I argue is it's not just about making the listserv, right? We've, we're all part of networks that are dead, right? You have to, to make a network live, somebody has to take the time to be constantly saying, Anton, did you know that, you know, Sarah 
Clara is actually doing this, and that's really valuable to you. Somebody has to, to be looking at who needs to be connected to whom, when, and, and a live network is an asset. So I think we've done it, it is sort of by accident, but what I'm saying is we can be so much more strategic about it, and again, we can use theory about what the shape of the network is to actually make it work better. It seems to me, hearing you say this, that in fact, the populists are better at using these networks than the establishment, and that might actually be a reason, not just for Trump, but for Brexit. How do you respond? Well, I do think that people who are out of power often uh, use networks to overturn people who are in power. I think also there's, if you think about the populace, the excitement of discovering there's somebody like me who thinks this. So when you saw Trump watch Brexit and then say, look, now I can do it. And now uh, he's working with the parties in Germany and France and the Netherlands and Poland and, and Hungary. There's a tremendous strength in creating that network that the establishment doesn't think it needs. Again, though, what I would be doing is really trying to see who's connected to whom and mapping it and figuring out, you know, do you try to disrupt that network or do you create the counter network? Do you build resilience, a networks of resilience to say, well, that network is there, but it's not going to have impact because we've, we've developed a way of absorbing. Anton, what do you make of what Anne-Marie is saying? You know, it is striking that Western sort of society should have understood the importance of networks, but actually seem to be much more susceptible to sort of the disruption caused by someone, a country like Russia, which has found means of, you know, penetrating Western societies, both by supporting far-right groups and populists and by spreading fake news and so on, that somehow, though Western societies were much more networked and aware, have proven to be much more vulnerable. That is a, a very striking irony. Part of it is, though, again, I think that the Russian government is it's used to the shadows, and it, it, is, it has been much more strategic. Uh, and there is a lot of people hear networks, and they think of something clandestine. They think of something that is hard to actually see, much less manipulate. But you're absolutely right that the Russian government, a little like ISIL, right, looked at social media and said, hey, there's a tool we can use, as opposed to a standard Western response, which is this is a form of speech. We don't interfere with it. We welcome it. And frankly, we have probably an overly benign view of what what will uh, emerge from it. But We took the view that it would spread the enlightenment and, and liberalism, that it would open up dictatorships and authoritarian regimes, whereas they seem to have survived quite well and um, seem to have been able to use the same tools against open societies. Well, you could also say, though, no, only after some nasty surprises, right? The color revolutions, the early Arab Spring revolutions, those were cases of social media working extremely well to overturn a government. But again, then then other forces catch up and they realize, wait a minute, we can use these tools too. We can spread disinformation. and uh, But also the original opposition not thinking about what do those networks have to look like to govern. And that is a, just a much harder uh, and longer-term proposition. And Marie, I, I want to end on this issue of governance, and I want to, um, very unfairly or maybe fairly, quote you uh, in your book. And you say, quote, They will appreciate how objects and people are changed by connection. They will quickly size up problems of too few connections or too many, of centralized, decentralized, and distributed structures, 
They will see resources where a chess player only sees weaknesses. They will understand leadership as empowerment, structures as information flows. Emory, it sounds like only Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Page could be the foreign policy, <laughs> tech-savvy leader of the future. How do we train these people to actually enact what you're proposing? Is it only the tech-savvy who can do it? And if so, how do we create these new leaders? Well, the tech-savvy certainly have an advantage, but I actually don't think you need to be Mark Zuckerberg. I would say anyone probably under 35 finds this to be a very congenial way of thinking because they have grown up connected. Uh, and so the notion of shaping those connections is not foreign to them. It's not going to be all that different than creating their own social media networks. But the other people who have a real advantage here, I have to say, are women, that when I uh, have given this lecture, I find women and young people nodding away. Women uh, are not biologically disposed to think in terms of networks, but sociologically, when you have not exercised power in hierarchies, you have learned how to make connections and deploy those connections strategically, as any women, certainly when I grew up in the American South, would tell you that's how they, they exercised uh, power. So I, I think this comes quite naturally to lots of people, but I do hope hope that students of foreign policy, students of business, students of civic organizations will learn to think in network ways, but not throw out the chessboard, because we really do need both. That's great. Listen, Anne-Marie, thank you very much for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thanks. And Anton, thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all for this show. Do get in touch to tell us your comments and reactions. We're particularly interested in hearing from the foreign policy wonkish among you on whether or not Anne-Marie's thesis on the web and the chessboard holds up in the real world. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. And as always, you can subscribe to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do join us again next week for another episode of The Economist Asks. In London, this is The Economist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.